All right, you ready to roll? Uh, All right, that was enthusiastic. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I just I just jumped in a little late. That's all. Okay. <laughs> What time is it? Entering the 1997-98 NBA season, the Chicago Bulls had won five championships in the previous seven years. But as they sought their second three-peat, the future of the dynasty was in doubt. As preparations began for the 1997-98 season, Jordan and Doubles granted unprecedented access to a film crew for the entire year. As Jordan was preparing to conclude his time with the Bulls, three friends in Toronto were about to graduate from university. This is their story as seen through the ESPN Netflix docuseries The Last Dance. Welcome to episode 3 of Jordan Ain't No Joke. My name is Sammy Yunan, and in honor of Jerry Seinfeld's Last Dance cameo, why don't you guys introduce yourselves and your favorite 90s must-see TV show. How's it going, everybody? Thank you for joining us again for episode 3 uh, of the podcast. Um, and uh, I am JT, and my pick for the 90s sitcom... I mean, does it have to be a sitcom, or can it be just, no, just any, any TV show? No, just any TV show, any live. Wow, okay. Um... So we can't say Seinfeld. So I, I'll skip that. Why not that. say Seinfeld? Well, okay. Well, as because technically, as of his appearance in the doc, uh, it was actually his last season. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it? Was it not? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's. Okay. So Seinfeld's on the table. Let's just make that an assumption. I, I think uh, probably. I think Cheers was Cheers done by then. Yep. Yep. Well, it went eleven years, and what it started around eighty. 80- Mm-hmm. Yeah, ninety three, ninety four was when it's done. That right. counts. So yeah, I will, I will, I'll throw in Cheers. Okay. <laughs> what about you, Dan? Oh, uh, what well, shows of the nineties? So many good ones. Uh, Wonder Years. Yes. Even though it ki- yes. kicked off in from eighty eight to ninety three, uh, I think one of the most iconic shows from the nineties. And Simpsons, I would have to say, because yeah. I think that's around eighty nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Simpsons was like, yeah, that would have been like uh, just on the come up and just hitting its sort of cultural phenomenon stride. Uh, I got to go with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah, that's your classic uh, 90s jam. Still holds up, though. Mm, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to move along now because that was awkward. So. Jazz holds up, I think, in the show. <laughs> Yo. Yo. Oh, man. We'll have to do like an After Dark episode or something like where we get into the Fresh Prince and just like... Anyways, we'll put that aside for now. Uh, last time, uh, I joked that episode four should have been called The New Hope uh, because that was the introduction of Phil Jackson. Uh, Denny, what do you think of uh, title for episode five? So many. So many possible titles for this one. Um, but let's see, like, I can't just think of one. It's just some of the things that kind of popped in my head was like, shit. 
Like that's all I heard. I guess he could that could be like across episode five and six, but yeah. just Jordan saying shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's some North Carolina like, still still with them, eh? Yeah, man. But that's kind of like the um kind of like that the uh, that Budweiser commercial from the nineties for me. The guys would be like, What's up? Yeah. Well, it's also that uh, character from The Wire, which is much later, but uh, he was infamous for using uh, that shit, you know, slang. But um, but in this case, uh, hearing Michael uh, say that in the locker room when he's giving, I'm not sure who he was giving that extra ticket to. <laughs> Randy Brown. Yeah. For to Randy Brown, yeah. Uh, it's pretty funny. Yeah, well, I mean, that's how Randy Brown got in the stadium. The ticket was for Randy Brown, so he could <laughs> sit on the bench. <laughs> sit on the bench, exactly. But no, okay. All fairness, Randy Brown was a real good defender back in those days. No, I know. That's, I'm just giving that was a his hard main. time. No, I know. I know. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's one of the titles that I that came up for me. Um, what about you, uh, Sam? What any title? What title might have popped up for you for episode five? Uh, the incorporation. Just because that was a lot of the the business stuff with the Nike stuff and just kind of seeing how that empire got built up. It's crazy because, again, it's just like we see that Converse commercial and then, like, that was the cool one. By the way, yep. how did they get Larry Bird to, like, start rapping and smiling in a commercial? <laughs> <laughs> what they put in his orange juice or something? Because you don't, you don't usually Dollars, see that kind man. of Larry Bird. Yeah, it was kind of uh, that that Converse commercial with with uh, Magic Bird and um, who was the third third person? Uh, Bernard there? King. Bernard King. Yeah, it was really awkward. Like it, it was almost like, you know, the the geniuses in marketing came up with this, and these guys just showed up and were asked to do this, and it, it just came off as really dated, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it just it makes a really amazing contrast to what comes after with Michael. What's kind of interesting about that segment right there, you you had Michael's agent, David Falk, talking about, you know, shopping him around. And then commercials playing in that commercial, like you guys said, there's Magic, there's Bird, there's Bernard King. Uh, but Isaiah Thomas is also in that commercial. And so was <laughs> Mark McGuire. But when when you have David Falk talking about it, in voiceover he doesn't mention those two guys <laughs> so i don't know if that's intentional or if that's just something like that he just kind of forgot or whatever but i thought it was kind of funny just that extra you know slight at isaiah yeah the, the hate <laughs> for isaiah is strong in this series that's for sure um and uh and I, so i'll just add my uh my ideas for a, an alternative title for the this episode is uh uh, be like Mike, except you don't want to be like Mike. <laughs> and uh, the episode does a good job of showing the, as Sammy says, the incorporation of, uh, you know, uh, Michael Jordan Inc. essentially. And uh, and essentially, you know, the uh, dark side of it or the, or the downside of it as well. Um, and it's an incredible episode. I, I was so excited to see this episode because, you know, a lot of our memories and a lot of our feelings towards Michael Jack, uh, Michael Jordan, is uh, is kind of wrapped up in in the cult, pop culture phenomenon that he'd become, and all the things that sort of you know were a part of that from the commercials, the endorsements, the movies or the movie, uh, all of that was a you know I think speaks to a lot of what we experienced in our in our sort of formative years. Does it surprise you or? 
I guess, yeah, I'll go with surprise. Does this surprise you that Spike Lee hasn't been as involved with the, the last dance that you would expect him to do a lot more considering his background with Jordan, considering he's a director with like a lot of documentaries? Do you think it's surprising I, that Spike's not like a producer or something? Well, no, I mean, I don't think it's surprising that he's not a producer. I mean, these things, you know, uh, you know, these things come from different places. Uh, you know, Spike Lee may not have had um, any time to be involved with it. He may not have been asked to be a part of it. Uh, I think he's in it the right amount. Um, if the story was really more about just MJ Inc., then maybe he would be a bigger character in, in that. But the, the story, and this is something we've talked about before, the story is, is a little broader than just Michael Jordan for Spike Lee to take up any significant time. That being said, I mean, Spike Lee didn't play a small part in in creating and uh, helping create the, the, the magic of, of Michael Jordan's, um, you know, cultural phenomenon. Um, so I think he's in it the right amount. I mean, I I don't know. I, I guess I am a little surprised. I, he hasn't really had an interview interview section yet, though, right? No, he hasn't been interviewed. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see if he pops up in any uh, in the next few episodes. But um, yeah, in terms of involvement, I guess it yeah, it doesn't matter. Like just like what Jigger said, uh, anybody could kind of start these things up, and it could be multiple reasons why he's not behind the scenes. But in terms of just being a more present person within the documentary, I guess I'm a little surprised. Well, I mean, he has mentioned the documentary in his Instagram feed. Um, and, you know, there's enough archival footage of him that, uh, you know, I can see if they didn't have time, you know, in terms of production constraints and schedules to not interview him. I, I don't miss him uh, in this context anyways. But, um, but I think, you know, I think he was a big part of that whole phenomenon. And it's interesting because, you know, it was, you know, this episode basically cements Michael Jordan in the pantheon of those iconic 80s pop culture celebrities. You know, we're talking about your Michael Jackson, your Prince, your Whitney Houston's Madonna's. He is of that caliber in terms of purely pop culture phenomenon. And uh, that's quite, you know, rarefied air, pardon the pun, hmm. to be playing in. And um, this episode does an amazing job of showing how that happened and how it, it, it took off that way. I don't think we'll ever see anybody with that level of fame again. Like you and I, were Jig, we're talking about this a little while ago. We're like, everything's so kind of fractured now and it's all niche now. And you can get a certain level of fame, but like, I think it was in the, it was the second episode where that dude uh, who works with the Bulls was talking about how, like, Jordan would get mobbed after the game, and then he would have all the reporters, and he'd have to leave. And then uh, before the game, there was, like, the Make-A-Wish Foundation kid that he had to hang out with, and then there'd be people at the hotel, and, like, on and on and on, just a sea of people. I don't, like, I don't think we'll ever see that again, just that level of, like, fame and, like, just the demand for a piece of him. And he was doing this all without a cell phone. Like, my man was chilling, man. Like, he would have had demands for tickets constantly if he was, like, just a few years later. And without the internet, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it, the, the idea that he was, um, especially after the Olympics, he had just become an international superstar. Uh, and, and that, I believe, it's this era. That, when we talked about this in the first episode, about how Michael Jordan is one of the few people who've, who've transcended the sport that he played. 
And it's really this episode shows you how that happened. And, um, you know, I, I, like Sammy says, that's just not something that happens anymore. Everyone has their niche. You have certain stars that are, you know, international superstars. And I would argue that a lot of those people are sort of the hangovers from the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. You know, someone like a Tom Cruise or someone who's known internationally, you know, kind of came up in that era. Uh, I mean, I can't think of anyone that's that level now that, you know, that can be compared to as Michael Jordan has been a number of times in this series, uh, a god of, of sorts. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, you're right. No, I'm just gonna say, even in the NBA now, like there's players like Durant and Curry and stuff like that that are well known, but like, like the it's not the same level where like they're just camping out in the hotel room. Yeah, they're well respected, but yeah, for sure, there's that kind of a uh, that reach for the broader audience, the kind of the love that goes across everybody from everybody from every part of the world. I mean, LeBron's popular, but not everybody loves LeBron. Yep. But uh, it's it's funny that you um, you for your title, Sam, you said uh, corporation incorporation incorporation. Yeah, the incorporation. Of the, yeah. So that's that's actually a good kind of like jump into the next section because of into the um, the dream team section of the documentary. It's like, well, another title for this episode could have been "Suck It Reebok," because <laughs> that was pure like Mike. Michael Jordan being who he is, who's just sort of competitive. But I think what they're also maybe not, they're kind of missing from their description is loyal. So when he's on, when you're on his side, mm-hmm. he kind of sticks up for you no matter what. And just covering up that Reebok sign or, or Reebok logo on his Olympic uniform with the, the flag. I mean, it's sort of like a, a nice middle finger, but a patriotic one. <laughs> well, it's it's a. I mean, talk about a shrewd businessman. I mean, that's essentially what it came down to for me. Is like he knew, he understood what the brand, his personal brand, was and meant. And um, I love that moment in the car where the camera's behind him in the back seat, and he's like, "Well, wait, wait till they, these motherfuckers see what I got for them." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's like, "These guys." Uh, he goes, "This asshole's telling me that." they're not going to give me their gold medal if I don't show the logo. He's like, wait, wait till they see what I got from. And I mean, I mean, it is kind of a genius move. Mm-hmm. Like on the one level. Yeah, it is a, it is a great kind of a business mind, but I think that when you even kind of boil it down to its, to its most simplistic root, that's him just being competitive and being loyal, you know what? And that just kind of, that's his personality, no matter what, he's venturing off to 100 percent. he was on, he was on team nike and that's when it comes to the the sports branding and and you know that sort of stuff i mean his team was nike and and he was loyal to that team just as he was loyal to the bulls on the on the court uh it's just it's such a baller move to be yeah. honest because it's like a he he covers up the Reebok logo so they don't get what they want and B they can't really complain about it because it's <laughs> without seeming unpatriotic uh so yeah what just a total baller move. one of the things we don't kind of ever acknowledge with a lot of NBA players is Denny you mentioned this like loyalty but you're signed to Nike and you're signed to the Chicago Bulls 
But the Chicago Bulls, and we've seen this already for the first two or three episodes, the Chicago Bulls were kind of dirty in the way they were treating Pippen, treating other players and stuff like this. So your relationship with your primary um, employer, I guess for lack of a better term, is a little rocky and it's not quite as steady. But for the most part, like Kobe's one of the few who went from Adidas to Nike, but like most players don't really kind of jump ship, right? They kind of just stay with Nike or they stay with Adidas, whatever it may be. And so that again is like kind of heightens why Jordan was so frustrated with the Bulls and the organization and Jerry Krause. They're stabbing him in the front a little bit. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. But yeah, but at least Mike didn't sit there and cry and whine and then just left, right? He kind of like, all right, I'll find other ways. Mm-hmm. And he made a lot of dollars like outside of the Bulls. But he still remained loyal to the Bulls where most people would just be, all right, I'm gone. Well, yeah, and, and I think we'd be remiss not to uh, thank uh, Mama Jordan Dolores for making MJ take that Nike meeting. Because uh, <laughs> you know, he was all about that ear. Yeah, <laughs> he was all about that, the, those Adidas. And uh, of course, Adidas was not in a position to really, you know, uh, you know, make Michael Jordan a, a, his own shoe. And so, um, you know, Dolores basically told him, like, you have to go and listen to him. That's all you got to do. Just go and listen to him. She made him go to that meeting and, you know, credit to her. And and of course, credit to Phil Knight for seeing what the future held uh, for his own brand, but also for for what Michael Jordan uh, was going to mean to to Nike as well. These two episodes focus on a lot of controversies and quote unquote scandals with Jordan and the one with the shoes that they didn't bring up with the whole sneaker pimps thing. Remember that when the shoes, when the kids were getting killed in like uh, Southside Chicago and some of the more sketchier parts of the American cities, and kids were getting shot. And so kids were getting jumped. Yeah, jumped. Yeah. It was a thing. You would get jumped for your Jordans. But yeah, they, they kind of skip over that. I thought that was weird because it's like this whole thing was just about all these criticisms of Jordan. And that was a big one at the time because it was like, uh, like they asked him to do something. But I'm like, I don't know what you wanted him to do. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember specifically in time, because uh, that just seemed like across the board throughout the years, not just within, you know, the time, not not within the time frame of the 90s, but I guess the documentary would have took a different turn, <laughs> and how do you kind of, you know, go back to the main story of it, too. But yeah, no, mm-hmm. I, I was just as surprised as you guys, that there wasn't just a bit of a mention, mm-hmm. even just to kind of you know, emphasize how, uh, what these shoes were doing to, to the populace. Yeah, because nobody's jumping like LA gear or like... <laughs> British Knights. <laughs> Bullet. <laughs> like, that was also, that's how prominent the shoes were, man. People are getting jumped. Yeah, well, my first pair of Jordans was the Jordan 3. And I was in the 8th grade, so that was 88. And I brought those shoes to school, but I brought it in my bag, and I only wore them in the halls. Yeah. And then when I when I left school, they went back in the bag because I knew I was gonna get rolled. They were just show shoes. Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. I wanted to make sure I had shoes to show <laughs> at the end of the day. So. But but what an amazing uh, confluence of of things that had to come together. Like so, you have, you know, Jordan's agent realizing that this guy was going to need to be marketed as a golfer and not a basketball player. So he's, he's being marketed as someone outside of a team. 
And uh, that, that, that is an amazing stroke of genius as well. And then for Nike to be in that moment, creating this new air sole, which completely dovetails with what Michael Jordan is, uh, you know, as, as he says in the documentary, Michael plays in the air. And for all of that to just sort of come together, uh, it's something we've touched on in the past where it's, um, you know, it's the, the right person, you know, meeting the, his time, you know, and meeting the history at the right moment. And uh, it's just it's just one of those things that hasn't happened again. It, it's kind of like with, and we've I think we've touched on this before, is with with Star Wars uh, and George Lucas taking all the toy rights. It was unheard of, and uh, once he did it, now it's just a thing you do. Uh, you know, players now just do these big endorsements if if their game warrants it, and it's just become part of the process. But this this was kind of revolutionary. Yeah, there was a, that moment with Howard White, uh, the Nike executive. You've seen him in a number of other documentaries, the Air Jordan 1 documentary. But he had a moment where he's like, we're giving all this money and this shoe to a rookie who hasn't done anything. And that was also the, the, the start of that too. Because now a lot of kids come into the league and they sign. I think LeBron's initial contract was like $80 million or $70 million or something with Nike right off the bat when he hadn't done anything. But... Jordan and Jordan even mentioned in this doc to, in this episode what that his game drove the marketing. And Jordan had this great line where he said, like, if I was scoring like two points a game, I wouldn't do any of this. Like I'd be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> and he's right. Like, if he wasn't putting the numbers up, so it it's it's in a weird way, when people talk about like the magic of the moment or the pressure of the moment, Jordan also realized he had to deliver for Nike too right like because he had to justify the contract and the sales and everything else uh the gatorade the mcdonald's like so he had to deliver he painted himself in a good corner and in a shout out to the uh, you know the filmmaking this episode you know we we've talked about every episode having a, a great montage of of you know of of jordan or one of the other players on the court scored to you know amazing music and this episode is no you know exception they've they actually did a montage of endorsements <laughs> um, with um, Special Ed's uh, song, uh, I Got It Made. And it was just it was just amazing. I loved it. Special Ed's still making money in 2020. He sure is. And the other thing is, what was amazing is, you know, we even though we, they didn't touch on the whole thing of uh, kids getting jumped for the shoes, uh, they, when they interviewed Nas, he, he talks about how having a pair of Jordans was like having a lightsaber. Like it was just like this magical thing. Yeah. Uh, and again, that's something that just doesn't really exist anymore. You know, part of that's because manufacturing's gotten so cheap. It, you know, everyone can get anything at this point for, you know, a decent price. But the Jordan shoes still pull in. Like they're still one of the most successful lines. That's another thing. <laughs> when people argue about the difference between LeBron and Jordan, Jordan's shoe line still goes through, like through the roof. And like LeBron's sales are all right. But Jordan, like, and he hasn't played for, like, 20 years, basically. His sales are still strong. And, like, whenever they get dropped, the new ones that come out, and when they do the retro ones, too, those go through the roof. Yeah, and Jordan's usually top three every year mm -hmm. in sales. Usually number one from the past few years. Like, I mean, I think Adidas sometimes kicks up. But, but speaking of sneakers, how about that section where, you know, they were talking about the whole Jordan might have said, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too. Yeah. Because of the whole uh, Senate r race in North Carolina. 
Yeah, that was a, a, an amazing uh, uh, section to sort of watch because it, it's it's while it was a, it was a big issue back then, it, it seems like it's something that would definitely be an issue today. Um, and the question, I think, what it comes down to is, was he right? Yes. And I, and, and I, I think he was. Uh, I, the thing is that people often forget in these situations is, is context and nuance. You know, Michael Jordan was a businessman. He never said he was anything more uh, than a basketball player. And he's right. Republicans do also buy shoes. And for him to, you know, publicly make political statements is just not good business. And it would take focus away from the only thing he cared about, which is the game. And, you know, what people don't realize is that he, and he mentions this in the documentary, he said, well, I may not have said anything publicly, but I did donate to his campaign. And, uh, and another thing, we talked about Spike Lee earlier in the 90s, Spike Lee was around this time was making uh, Malcolm X, his, his masterpiece about uh, you know, the civil rights leader. And at a certain point, Warner Brothers shut the, the film down and said, there's no more money for you. And so Spike Lee had to go hat in hand to, you know, the richest celebrity African-Americans he, he knew. And of course, one of them was Michael Jordan. There was Prince. There was Janet Jackson. There was um, Bill Cosby. But before all that stuff happened <laughs> and uh, uh, and many others uh, that escape my mind right now. But Spike Lee tells this amazing story where he went to MJ and was like, look, I, you know, I need money to finish this movie. And these are the other people who've, who've helped out. Prince has helped out. Janet Jackson helped out. Magic Johnson has helped out. And uh, and uh, MJ's answer is, uh, how much did Magic give? <laughs> and so Spike uh, Spike tells him. And of course, uh, Michael, being as competitive as he is, uh, you know, outbids whatever uh, Magic Johnson gave him, and and he says, um, Spike Lee says he'll never uh, say how much it was, but uh, Michael Jordan did end up paying uh, or, or donating more than Magic. So I mean, he did do things. He just wasn't interested in being a public about it. Mm-hmm. And that was very much the attitude for the longest time, really, for celebrities in general, is that they didn't want to become. Um, somebody stuck in the middle between political fights they you were just if you're an entertainer you're just an entertainer you're trying to entertain everybody but i mean you know to clarify jordan said he just said that uh as a joke on the bus to a couple of teammates and then it gets blown up so but the section was i think it was a great a great moment in the documentary where once again it kind of like it shows you the authenticity of of jordan He's just like, hey man, I lead by example. If what I do inspires you, great. Yeah. Uh, and if not, then maybe I'm not the guy you should be following. It's just like he doesn't need everybody's love and attention, as this, you know, as these two episodes actually tell you, right? He's just doing him. He's just trying to do what he's doing. And if people love him, great. But if not, he's not there for you. What people overlook is that when you're like at a wedding, for example, and a DJ drops Michael Jackson. Everybody gets up. The grandmothers gets up. The little kids gets up. Everybody reports to the dance floor. And you only get a handful of things in pop culture that are like that pure, that cut across everybody. And Jordan, as you see those montages, now especially cut to like LL Cool J and everything else, now 
It's like Jordan was that one thing where it was singular. It didn't matter if you were a rich white dude or a kid from the south side of Chicago. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor. None of those things mattered because when you saw Jordan play, you're like, yo, that was fresh. Like, how did he do that, right? So if he had been political and he'd been outspoken, he would have started dividing people, and then that would have re reduced the essence and the value of that. 100%. And I mean, up until that point, I don't think very few, you know, sports celebrities had done uh, what Muhammad Ali had done. I mean, Muhammad Ali is sort of the the example and the standard bearer when it comes to making political statements. But it cost him his prime. And that's not for everybody, you know, and, and nor should everyone be expected to, to, to be, you know, that level of uh, commitment committed to um, social causes um, when that's not what your main desire or goal is in life. That doesn't mean you don't care. That doesn't mean you don't, uh, you know, believe in those causes. It just means that, you know, you're not going to be public about it because it affects everything else. And I think now, you know, it's, it's popular to be woke uh, because it's also kind of cheaper to be woke. Mm -hmm. Anyone can, you know, tweet out some pithy remark and be woke and be accepted. Uh, it's harder to be silent and maybe do stuff behind the scenes that and then no one maybe ever really knows about it. And that seems to be what Jordan did back in the day. Yeah, it's like it's like I'm going to vote for Obama like a couple of years back or whatever. And I'm like, well, that's not like that's not a political statement. Like that's a really easy, cheap thing. Like you're saying, like you're not really taking a risk here. Right. Or like we got to help poor people. Like people say things like that now. And you're like, well, that's not really like profound or like you're not really doing anything. And Jordan had that good line, like as when his mom was saying, like, I think you should uh, like help out Harvey Gant. Uh, I want to keep saying Harvey Dent, but I, when he says Harvey Gant um, and he responds to his mom and he's like, I don't know who this is. Like he also had to realize too the association, like he, he messed up with the golf stuff and we'll get into that. Cause like he had bad associates, but this was something he kind of kept learning uh, throughout his career. It seems that he had to figure out who these people were that were around him and that he was supporting because his shadow was so huge. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, Obama, it, it, who makes an appearance in this episode, also has a very nuanced point of view on this whole thing. Well, you know, he does say, well, he, he was somewhat disappointed because, you know, Jesse Helms was just so reprehensible. Uh, but he also gave Jordan um, a little bit of leniency when he said, like, but, you know, Michael seemed to, you still figuring all this out. I mean, he wasn't he was still trying to work out who he was and who he wanted to be. And, and yeah. so he, it's understandable that he didn't uh, want to make uh, any waves at that point. Yeah, and it is such a contrast to today's, you know, star, no matter if you're, you're like entertainment or sports, it's like, it's part of your branding that you immediately create this woke social justice, you know, character, you know, character, somebody who has a, I guess a point of view, but I don't know what that point of view sometimes has to do with if your team is winning or losing. And that's what for Jordan, I think that's what it all boils down to. Everything was nice, all the endorsement, all the cash, but if he's losing, then it, it's all pointless. It's meaningless. Yeah, uh, it's all about the game. Was it Judd Bushler? I think it was in the second episode or the third episode. I think it was Judd Bushler or Will Purdue. One of them. They were saying how like. Sorry, when you say second or third, do you mean? five episode five or six no no or the last dance previous weeks previous okay. weeks there's um i think it was jed bushler but he was saying how 
the the first time that Jordan had won a championship, they saw all this emotion come out of him. And up till then, yeah, and up till then, it was just like all anger and frustration. <laughs> well, if Will Purdue was your <laughs> your teammate, maybe you'd show a lot of anger and frustration as well. <laughs> Valid. <laughs> Uh, but I think that's the other thing too. Was that Jordan's in a position where, like, you're playing basketball, you only get five years or seven years. You're not like Brad Pitt, where you can be famous for like ten, fifteen, twenty years. Like, how many years has Tom Cruise been like super famous, right? Like, you get a window of time, and I think Jordan recognized that window. And he's like, "Look, I gotta put everything on hold. I gotta win championships. I gotta do all these things. Then we can deal with everything else after." And I think that's well, why yeah, he kind I mean... of balls up all those emotions. Well, for for basketball players, your your prime years are your your twenties and you know into your maybe early thirties. Would, yeah. would that be fair? Like you know, once you're getting into your thirties, you're you're on the downward slide usually. And the team has to be good too. Yeah, you got to get to work, and you can't really um, you know dilly dally with all this other stuff if you really want to win championships and, and play great ball. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's just. Once again, it's a personality thing. He's just thinking of the moment. He's not worried. I don't think he's worried too much far down the line. He's just worried about the W for that night. And mm. if guys are slacking, it's it doesn't take much, uh, you know, studying to see who's not doing something right or who's kind of being a little lazy. Will Purdue. So the game's only 48 minutes, right? Especially if it's when you're comparing it to what Jordan's doing, right? So it's it's in stark contrast to whatever he's doing. Um, if you're not pulling your weight, it's going to show. And I wonder, too, if that impacted um, how we viewed politicians as well. Because nobody's ever really been like the Michael Jordan of politics. There's been people who are like the Michael Jordan of like directing and other things. But like the Michael Jordan of politics, it doesn't really exist. I just don't think that the politics can really even make that happen. <laughs> That's just not possible, I don't think. Yeah, politics uh, is a little more complex than basketball, yeah. but... Yeah, so as far as like you know, comparing Jordan to uh, you know, you know, current the current crop of players and, and, and their uh, wokeness, I mean, I think Jordan was singular in his in his vision for the game, and and you could see that certainly uh, at the Olympics, um, where you know everything that was going around around these this dream team, at the end of the day on the court, it just came down to what was uh, going down with the Bulls. And Pippen and Jordan went to town on Tony Kukoc. <laughs> and uh, Sammy, I think you've got a title in mind for uh, that section. Yeah, Tony's Tears. Tony's Tears. My God, these guys were <laughs> brutal. You know, it's funny because I, I, I didn't have really strong memories of that whole incident. Uh, but seeing how just brutal they were. And, and you know, they, in hindsight, they were saying that, you know, it was really just about Krauss and it wasn't about Tony, but I have to say, I felt bad about, about it uh, for Tony. And over the years, I've probably made fun of Tony Cook coach. <laughs> 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 um, but uh, I have a hope for newfound respect for him. You can tell that even in the interview, <laughs> like 20 some odd years later, he's, there was still a little bit of a hurt. <laughs> they didn't know me. <laughs> Once you got to know me, I'm a nice guy. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on with the Bulls. They didn't even know me. Yeah. <laughs> it was rough because one of the commentators talk about uh, how when he comes back uh, for, during the final for the gold um, for the gold medal match, 
uh, and the guy goes, uh, you know, Tony came back and he played well after being completely emasculated. <laughs> like, whoa, that was brutal. Yeah. But quite the choice of words. I mean, I don't yeah. think it went down that badly. I mean, they played intense defense on him, but um, I mean, but, <laughs> he had, but he had four points. Sure. Uh, but and, and to be fair, Michael was really fair to him in the interview. And he said, look, he was playing against a team of the best players in the world. So, you know, he goes, I, I, you, you can't fault him for that. For sure. And the the dream team, to also to be fair, they destroyed everybody, anyways. Yeah. Right. I think the one team maybe got like under thirty points or something. Like, <laughs> for the most part, they destroyed everybody. So they obviously singled out Tony, but everybody got crushed that summer. So it's true. But you know, I mean, how, what do you guys think about just that whole idea of? You know, the U.S. team is just terrible up until that point. And so they decide the only way to fix it is to just literally get the best players in the world to be the team. Do you think that was fair? Well, what was happening, though, was all the other countries had their professional players on their Olympic teams forever. Mm -hmm. So that's when the U.S. were like, okay, well, up until then, we were sending our college guys. But why can't we send our pros, too? Yeah, I suppose that's fair. But, you know, once it actually happens, it's just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, that, yeah, that's a whole kind of, you know, we have to look back at what was going on with not only the U.S. Uh, team in the kind of the time before 92, but what was happening in the other countries. Yeah, the thing, too, is like the other countries were starting as well at that point, right? Like Croatia had Tony Kukoc. Uh, he was their big, like, the franchise player. Like, uh, most countries had, like, one player, maybe two players, like, noticeably good or, like, NBA level or were actually even playing in the NBA. So I don't know if it was necessarily fair or unfair, but this was at least the start of kind of putting those seeds in so that there are more international players now. And they're they're a lot better now, and they do a lot more. So we're still sending, like, NBA players to these things, but the competition is a lot more fierce and they're not blowing teams out by like 40 points at the half and things like that. Well, I think it's also, uh, it was a watershed mark for the NBA uh, in terms of its global reach. At the end of the day, I don't think it was really even about gold medals. Uh, I think it was about the NBA extending its reach beyond, you know, the, the 50 states or 50 whatever states, right? So in that regard, I think it was important that the, those you know, NBA players ended up playing that year. Um, and for them, it, it just seemed like it was just like a summer hangout. Uh, it yeah. seems to that to me that for them, it, it was all about those practices and, and those, those great, great, amazing footage of, the, of those guys practicing. And can you imagine being there and seeing these guys, the top players in arguably, you know, all of the NBA history, just going at it full tilt? <laughs> The practice, yeah, I mean, the practice themselves could be like a whole documentary, just, mm-hmm. just like a few like interviews here and there, and just watch the practice. Actually, from one of those practices in this episode, that that brought on like a potential another title for me for this. It was like, well, you know, it could be like who's all playing, <laughs> or AKA one me. <laughs> yes. Because the whole like leaving Isaiah out and Jordan was like, look, you can believe what you want to believe, but it was me. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that was a huge controversy, you know, after the episode aired, uh, you know, especially after, I guess, a couple episodes before that, uh, in the whole incident of walking out the court, Isaiah Thomas has not had a good run uh, with, with this Last Dance series. Um, <laughs> it's you his know, Last it's, Dance, too. Yeah, it seems like it's his Last Dance, yeah. <laughs> But, you know, they do do a good job of, you know, and, and Michael's very shrewd about saying, like, look, I do not like the man, but I respect his game. I respect everything else that but, about what he's done for himself. But uh, as a player on the on the court, I, I just don't like him. And, uh, man, he just, I don't, know, I don't know what you guys thought about the whole, the whole thing about him getting snubbed. I mean, some say it was magic that had more to do with it. Michael clearly is washing his hands of it. What are your thoughts? We kind of you touched upon it already that this was clearly like spring break basically for basketball players. Like they knew that the competition they were going to face was not going to be formidable, and not only that, but they already had the greatest team, like literally the greatest team ever assembled in the history of team sports. So they knew that there's not going to be a lot of pressure, and it wasn't like you know there was nobody going to have to worry about who's going to take the last shot or anything like this. Like they were they were killing these teams early on. And I think part of it, too, is just because they knew that they were going to have so much fun and they're chilling in Barcelona that it didn't make sense to invite Isaiah and have all this tension. And Jordan alluded to that, too. Like, if Isaiah had come, it would have changed the whole chemistry. Um, So this was just a way for them to just have a spring break and have no pressure and, like, hang out with equals, like... Enjoy the people you're with. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think it was fair. I think they did the right move. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And, you know, over the years, even prior to this documentary and the Dreamsy documentary, there's always like talks about who might have been the people who shut him out. And I think the people who were most kind of vocal about it after the fact was Carl Malone and Scottie Pippen. So, uh, and then you know about the magic beef, beef with Jordan, beef with Bird. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> sorry, man. Like, if you had a better attitude, <laughs> and maybe you could have joined the fun. Oh, for sure. I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think it, he has a, a leg to stand on in terms of, of that whole dynamic. I mean, he knew who he was and his dynamic with each of those guys. And for him to show up in Barcelona, you know, that would have been about him and not about the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think ultimately it was part of the right decision. It's just, uh, man. <laughs> It it's hurts. just kind of fun to watch. Yeah. Well, he says in the do- in the last dance, I met the criteria. I'm like, yeah, but so what? A lot of people who apply to Harvard meet the criteria. Not everybody gets into Harvard, son. For sure. And, and this goes down to, you know, anything in life. Like, you know, if you ask any top performing companies, right, like they don't always need everyone to be a franchise player. Mm-hmm. They need people who can be a part of the team. And those people are just as important, if not more, to success. And so, you know, for Isaiah to feel like, well, I met the criteria. Well, yeah, a lot of people can meet the criteria, but you were an asshole. Yeah. And nobody wants to work with an asshole. That happens on film sets all the time. You hear about these genius uh, cinematographers or whoever, and, and you realize that they're, they're a real pain in the ass to work with or, or an actor who is you know a huge celebrity and would get your money your movie made but he's got a bad reputation uh you don't want to work with that guy you no one needs that grief speaking of non-franchise players 
if you watch the Dream Team documentary, there's a, there's a really great moment in it where, and you kind of see a little bit of this in The Last Dance, but like uh, Magic Johnson would leave the hotel room and people would just be screaming and magic, magic, magic. And like Larry Bird would leave the hotel room and people would just be screaming like, Larry, Larry, Larry. And Jordan, of course, it would just be pandemonium. John Stockton, who looks like a, just an ordinary white guy, <laughs> would leave in the hotel room. Nobody would bat an eye. He's one of the 50th greatest players on the NBA, but nobody would, like, look at him. He's just walking around in shorts with his wife and his kids. He's got a camcorder. He's doing, like, the, <laughs> like a traveler thing, and he's just, like, shooting video as he goes along, just checking the sites. Nobody's bothering him. Just one, one very slow golf clap in the distance. <laughs> yes. And then in the evenings, he just goes and joins the Dream Team. Because he's on it. He's earned his place there. D- destroys all the other countries. And then goes back to his shorts. That's it. John Stockton, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe that was the ideal life. Maybe that was one that Jordan wanted. Oh. The other quote uh, from that section that I, I just uh, loved was um, when they talk about, you know, the impact that Michael Jordan and that dream team had. Um, and how by the end of it, uh, Michael had, you know, essentially cemented himself as the alpha of the alphas. And I was like, wow, that's just, yeah. And that's a set, so perfectly uh, stated with everything that went on uh, in Barcelona. Uh, at the end of the day, Michael was, and uh, I think will always be the alpha of the alphas when it comes to basketball. Yeah, for true. There's a weird thing too, and we saw it in the beginning of this episode five, the way that Magic and Larry Bird and Jordan were kind of talking uh, in the back of Madison Square Garden there. There, there's a shorthand or like they're all on the same level now, right? They've all like won championships and stuff like this. They're all like NBA greats. They're all the face, not just the face of their franchise, but the face of the NBA. And it, it's one of those things where like we don't kind of talk about this. Like you go up through those levels. Like there's a there's got to be a shorthand when like Lucas and Spielberg and Scorsese and those guys get together versus some guy who just won Sundance and like he's only got his first film out. You know what I mean? Like. You you have to earn your way up to those levels to like be at, like with those people and like be able to connect with them and to be friendships and stuff like that. All right. So, <laughs> what do we got for uh, episode uh, six? Anybody got any titles for episode six? Like so many. Uh, once again, on this one, but it's sort of like I think one. Of, I think the title for this one, like the main title for me, anyways, would be "Yo, Stan, can I borrow a cigarette?" <laughs> <laughs> it's just a nice like I, I I really like this episode because I felt like there was more sort of just verite kind of moments, kind of a little more candid, not so much plot driven. I mean, it's still you know doing the overall arc, but mm-hmm. just the little tidbits, like an extension of that, um, the the uh, traveling cocaine circus kind of a <laughs> theme where he was Jordan was sitting there. They're all drinking uh, Miller Lights after mm-hmm. winning sixty games. And then he's telling the story about how, like, back in the day, brothers would be drinking a case by halftime. <laughs> yeah. And they'd be, like, getting cigarettes from the, uh, from the coach. Mm-hmm. They'd be like, yo, Stan, can I get, borrow a cigarette? <laughs> Danny, so, when, you look, when you look at those guys, like, Pippen had that nice suit on. Ron Harper had the nice suit on. Jordan had the nice suit. Yeah. We've seen a lot of cigars, the drinking. Are these guys kind of like our Rat Pack, our generation's Rat Pack, in a sense? That's a really good... Uh, um comparison yeah for true for true i mean those were the guys that i know i looked up to from a fashion sense from a fashion standpoint 
like one of the first GQ magazines I ever bought as a kind of a early teen was Jordan on the cover and you know also Spike Lee and but yeah that's why I wore ties and and dressed clothes to high school mm-hmm. you guys what do you what do you guys think well yeah I mean this is the you know the the gambler episode uh it's uh it it I was surprised that they they went that deep on that whole thing I didn't think uh, they'd Michael would allow it, but it seems like Michael actually asked for it. He, he wanted to talk about it and, and, and be open about it. And it's, it's amazing to watch some of the uh, bad decisions he made uh, <laughs> in that time. Like, you know, the, you know, obviously they're going to the casino and, and all that stuff, which he still defends, but, uh, but then sitting down, like shutting out the media and then finally decided he's going to talk about it to the media. He gets a Madra shot to come out with a camera and sits there wearing sunglasses during the whole interview, which destroys any credibility you have mm-hmm. uh, when people are accusing you of doing, you know, bad things. You sit there in sunglasses. It looks like you're hiding something <laughs> and, and yet you're, you know, being arrogant about the whole thing. And which is, you know, it's kind of refreshing to see because you, you've, realize that you know he wasn't perfect you know maybe on the court it was a different thing but he he was not a perfect man and you know some argued that for michael jordan to be gambling you know thousands of dollars on you know a golf game or what have you i mean it's it's literally like you and you or i betting 20 bucks on a golf game which i think is probably apt but um I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think it was sort of a, me- a media created thing where it's like, you know, you, you build up someone uh, only to find ways to ultimately break them down? Yeah. The issue isn't if he's gambling or not. If he has a gambling problem, that's his issue and he needs to seek professional help. The problem is that we have an arrogant problem and we can, if you ask people, what are the five like tattletale signs that somebody has a gang- gambling problem? Most people can't tell you. Like, we have these, like, psychology things where we think we know what we're talking about, but we don't. And so you really shouldn't be talking uh, about, like, these things. And if Jordan really did have a problem, whatever, then somebody like Ahmad Rashad, who was really close to him or still is close to him, he's got to pull him aside and say, yo, son, like, you need to, like, figure this out or do something like that. There needs to be an intervention of some kind. Yeah, and it's also, like he, he said, like, if I had a gambling addiction or a problem i'd be out on the street by now yeah like you know i think he i think it was him or someone else in the doc in the episode says uh it wasn't a gambling problem it was a competition problem yeah he's just a super competitor i mean he was sitting there literally you know betting on those coin tosses with the security guys you know and uh and jason hare the director of the of the um of the series uh has this great story of when one of the early days uh, when he met Mike uh, for this documentary, uh, him and MJ were driving to the stadium or he was along for a ride. And as soon as he got in the car, Michael Jordan's like, how much you want to bet we'll see more than 10 Jordans on the street between here and the stadium? Mm -hmm. And so he's like, oh, okay, sure. I'll take that. It wasn't for money or anything, but he yeah. just wanted to see if he can get one up on this guy mm-hmm. who he just met. Yeah. And of course, by the time they get there, they see three or four. And as they approach the stadium, 
he realized it that it was like uh, some sort of a convention of like sneakerheads or something like that. Yeah. It, it was a Jordan Classic game. It was a Jordan, that's right. It was a Jordan yeah. Classic. That's right. And and of course, immediately there's like thirty a hundred, yeah. you know, Air Jordans, uh, you know, being worn. And so it, it seems to me that it really was a competition thing, and it's just the way he's made up. And I don't know that it was a real problem. I think maybe there was a problem in terms of the people he was hanging out with. Yeah, uh, may may not have been fully vetted, but that's that's you know that's hard to say at this point. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, going back to your your original question, is it media created or is it a real problem? I mean, he goes by a different standard. Just like you have both mentioned, he has a completely different level of cash that none of us can can ever will reach. And you know, was it media created in the sense? Sure, I think a lot of it was because A, you got a story and B, traditionally, you know, people have always frowned on gambling for the longest time. Um, so, you know, for Jordan, as long as he's not in debt and he's not like selling his kids or what, then whatever, man, you can afford it. Well, you have to also wonder, right? Like, if you're a, a reporter and you see this guy gambling on a golf game, what you might make in a year, I, I bet that would probably seem weird and odd and, and story worthy to you. And it, you know, this is—I mean, I'm someone who works in, in media, and so I mean, I'm, I'm not giving the media a pass on this because to me, it seems like it was um, blown out of proportion. There may have been some, uh, you know, valid remarks in terms of who he was dealing with and, and betting with, but ultimately it all seemed pretty above board. And the last couple of years, about the last five years or so, gambling has become a lot more legal now in the states. Different states have been passing this these regulations, and you can gamble on games and uh, tip off and all kinds of things legally now at casinos. So. Like what you were saying before, Denny, where like people do frown on it. It was a little bit like the marijuana thing from back in the day, the way that people kind of frowned on it. And if you do grass and whatever, you're going to go down this road to yeah. ruin. And now it's like people do have legitimate issues and there have gambling is still like a, a problem. But for the most part, people can go to a casino and go bet a couple of things or whatever and then leave. And like we've all done it. I think we've all gone ourselves like together and left and we haven't lost our shirts. So... It's possible. And I think with Jordan, the fact that he has clearly ended up becoming a billionaire when so many other NFL and NBA players are completely broke. Latrell Sprewell signed a $125 million deal. He's living on his NBA pension. So the fact that Jordan still managed to become a billionaire means he was somehow able to keep some of the money somehow or people invested it or kept it away from him. Exactly. Were you surprised that they didn't use Kenny Rogers the gambler for one of the montages in this episode? I mean, now. I, that, <laughs> I mean, I don't think it would have worked with the the amazing soundtrack that this this series has had up until now. Um, but uh, maybe like a remix of it. I'm sure that his that song's been sampled by some hip hop artist. Hopefully, <laughs> Wyclef did some Kenny Rogers. Oh. Yeah, I think it was Wyclef. <laughs> it was Wyclef. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, so what about you guys? What what else stuck up from episode six for you guys? Any titles, potential titles for this one? I was just thinking about that Kenny Rogers thing, and that's when I was like, no one to hold him, no one to fold him. So <laughs> that's why. Uh, but also, too, when they had the, the, the Mod Rashad stuff, I was thinking, like, 
They should have just had Claire Huxtable just sort this all out. <laughs> so, Sam, anything else stuck to, out about episode six for you? Yeah, one thing that we should acknowledge as well, and I think people forget about this, is Ahmad Rashad had a huge football career. It's the way we look at Barkley now. Like, people are so used to seeing Barkley on TV. They forget that he was, like, a really good NBA player. He never won a ring, but he was a prominent NBA player. And it's the same thing, like, because we grew up with that era of Ahmad Rashad basically being our NBC inside stuff guy. And you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot you had this whole, like, career before. It's like if you just grew up watching OJ in Naked Gun (laughs) as Norver, and you forget that he was, like, this phenomenal running back for the Buffalo Bills. And you're like, oh, yeah. The Fred Dreyer, Hunter. Yeah. It's just those little things, too. You, like, you forget. Like, when you start to pull back and you start to see the culture as a whole. We started this episode talking about, like, 90s TV shows. And it's, like, that's, I kind of wish that the, again, the documentary is compressed. And I get this part. But, like, I wish there was a little bit more reference to, like, the actual culture. And, like, like you know what I mean? The way that Seinfeld just kind of came in and did a cameo and then left. Mm-hmm. It's, like... But the funny thing is that as big as Seinfeld was at that era, he was still like, Jordan was still even bigger, which is crazy. Yes, Seinfeld was completely awkward walking through that uh, (laughs) locker room. Hey, Phil. Yeah. (laughs) We're everywhere else. Seinfeld's completely comfortable. He feels like he's the top guy in the room. My favorite part was when he's uh, about to walk out and he points to the chalkboard. He's like, yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> and, but, and it just, the room is just silent. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, I think like the, he walks by one, I don't know if he was a security guy or whatever. He act, The security guy actually mumbles something like, yeah, just get it to Jordan. But like he said it quietly enough so that yeah. he hoped just Seinfeld heard it. That's the Doug Collins thing, right? Like, you inbound the ball to Jordan, the rest of you get out of the way. Mm-hmm. What about for you? What stood out for you for uh, episode six, Dan? Uh, I mean, another another part of this was like, um, you know, I, I could, you know, kind of title as Poor Charles Smith. Oh, and yes. this episode gets into the whole, like, how the Knicks are ascending since mm-hmm. the Pistons kind of um, got out and mm-hmm. they were the new tough guys. But then that series for the 93 playoffs with the Knicks, that was, like, incredible. Yeah. I remember that, you know, watching that as a kid. And I completely remember that game five where it's just boiling down to that last few seconds. And Charles Smith was under the basket. You got Horace, you got Pippen, you got Michael just swatting and swatting and swatting. The guy had no chance to get that ball in. Yeah. And that was, like, one of the best defensive sequences, like, ever. And no foul call, too. Like, that ball was bopping like a pinball game. And you're like, somebody's going to call it or somebody's going to... You know what I mean? Like, that's... The game was so much more fun then. Like, Mm because you're on the edge of your seat and that could go literally any way. Yeah, and to be fair, I mean, like, I guess a lot of times, uh, especially in playoff games, the last minute or so, the refs just let them play. Yeah. And, I mean, it looked... uh, I guess you have to watch it in slow-mo, but there was nothing that was really stood out as, no, that's a foul. Yes. So I have a question, though. The episodes before, we watched the Detroit Pistons, and then this one, we watched the battles with the New York Knicks. Does the finals always seem kind of anticlimactic in a way? Because it always seems like the battle for the Bulls was getting out of the East. And then once they got there, like uh, Magic was talking about how like uh, Jordan was coming out to destroy Clyde Drexler. He did it pretty efficiently. 
<laughs> um, yeah. Like there was the first finals where like Jordan's like we lost at our home floor, but they played terrible, and we knew we had them. And then they swept them basically after that. Like it always seems like the finals are kind of anticlimactic, doesn't it? Yeah, that's true. I mean, and I think back in those days, once they got over that hump, I remember being like, you know, you would watch the 1990s playoffs and you would just, I would be kicking and banging on my coffee table just because the Bulls were so close and they would just blow it. Mm-hmm. And then once they got past that hump from 91, it was sort of like, there was no team felt like a real threat. Yeah. And I mean, mind you, I was like, you know, 15 years old and all I ever cared about was the Bulls. And so you didn't, you didn't really have that analytical mind about all the other teams. Um, but yeah, it just, I, I do, there's one thing I want to say that Portland series, uh, I wish they had kind of, you know, spent a little more time on it because I do remember, I think it was that final game six. Jordan wasn't having a good game. Mm-hmm. And uh, that first half, and this, they brought in the bench, and the bench was actually brought them back. And then they inserted Michael like later into the game, and he just kind of finished it. But that, like that, I think it goes back to what you're saying. Like you wish there was just more time for more nuances about all the events that were happening, because there's so many great sub stories mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it just seemed like they were just bulldozing over everybody, especially they bulldozed over the Supersonics in 96. Yes. Uh, but we'll get to that, <laughs> I guess, next episode. Today's the day that the um, – I forgot what year it is. I should have written it down. But it was the, the first-round series when the Denver Nuggets upset the Sonics. Mm. It was the first time ever that an eight seed upset the first seed. Yes. Yeah, I remember – yeah, 94, 95 or something like that. I, I should have written it down, but yeah. But yeah, there was that really well-known image of Mutombo on the ground with the ball in his hand, and he's just like, yeah, biggest smile ever. Well, I mean, I think we, we touched on it earlier, is, is you know, the, they talk the series against uh, Barkley and, and Phoenix. They, uh, you know, Barkley doesn't get enough credit for how, how good he was uh, as well in that series. Yeah, for true. And he had a, well, he was the MVP of that year. Mm-hmm. And even, even the Dream Team section, if you go back to the Dream Team documentary, like Barkley was, he was sort of the man. Yeah, he was. And, and he, I think, you know, it irked Jordan that, that Barkley was the MVP. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that really bugged him. You can tell even to this day. Well, yeah, <laughs> since he doesn't speak to the guy. Yeah. I like those sons, though. Those sons were fun. Yeah, you got Marley, you got um, Kevin Johnson, you mm-hmm. got yeah, KJ, Danny yeah. Ainge. Danny, Danny Ainge again, yeah. yeah. Danny Ainge double miss. dipping. That's right. <laughs> I know, he was Portland the year prior, and then he just jumped onto the Suns the next year. Yeah. But it's also, you. Rem- it was great to see that the interview f- footage of Barkley of just what a breath of fresh air he was. <laughs> I mean, he was fun to watch, and, and, and it was amazing during the Olympics uh, where someone asked him about the the Kukoc thing, and he he just didn't care to be political or or take a pass on on sharing his opinion. He was like, "Yeah, you got to, you know, yeah, you got beat because uh, Chicago should be paying Pippin money." <laughs> he just didn't care, and, and I, I think that's what makes him so uh, unique uh, amongst uh, 
even especially players today who are much more you know media savvy yeah um he just didn't give a shit yep. and that just was his personal style and it, it's just so great to watch is there anything else we got to cover for five and six or so one of the other uh, amazing moments uh, in, in episode five is uh, when they start off uh, with Kobe in the uh, in the All Star game, and uh, it's sort of these the, the meeting of of generations. You know, it's the this new a young buck coming in, and uh, it's amazing to see Kobe just say, "Give me the ball, I got Mike, I got Mike." And him wanting to turn it into a one-on-one game, and Michael seeing what he was doing and just respecting the hell out of the, the, the Laker boy, as he used to call him. Uh, anyone, anyone have any thoughts on what what uh, Kobe had to say? You know, clearly they shot this uh, before his passing. Yeah, I mean, for me, honestly, for especially for this generation, it was a good, it was a great sigh of relief from my end, uh, from all the frustrations of all the the hating on Jordan. So I love like when Kobe said, you know, what you get from me is from him. Mm-hmm. You know, like he couldn't have done, he couldn't have won those championships without Mike, Mike's guidance and his advice. And just because for the longest time, if you try to tell everybody, well, you know, Kobe was a bit of a, like just a clone of Jordan. Kids wouldn't want to hear that. Yeah. There's also Kobe didn't care. Like, when we talk about how like uh, Jordan loved winning more than he hate than he liked hate, like so when Rodman came on the Bulls, he's like, right, Rodman can help us win. I'll take it. And Kobe's the same way. Like he would have probably preferred if Jordan had been younger or something to go out and destroy him. But because of that level at at the end there with Jordan, he was like, I can learn from this guy, and he wanted to take as much knowledge. And you never hear these stories with like LeBron the same way, like trying to learn all these things and trying to grow and like reaching out to people. There's stories of like uh, Kobe reaching out to Tex Winter when he was still on the Bulls, and like Kobe's just asking him like late at night, calling like waking the old man up, and like he's like, I got questions about the triangle offense, I got questions about this and whatever, and like he had such a hunger and a passion to learn and to get better, and so if he could take it from anybody, from because he dropped, he finished high school and basically like this was his university and his college all at the same time, so if he could take it from anybody, he was happy to do it. And he wasn't afraid to fail publicly uh, in in that uh, on the road to to succeeding, uh, which is uh, inc- an incredible lesson for anybody in any walk of life. Uh, so it was just so great to see Kobe, you know, so unequivocally state how important Michael Jordan was to his his career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we should recognize Kobe because it is a valid point. What you're looking forward to the next couple of episodes? Go ahead, DC. I am looking forward to the uh, the whole <laughs> practice fight with Steve Kerr. I hope oh. they really <laughs> break yeah. it down like the grassy knoll kind of a thing. Because <laughs> that's a story you've heard for years. And yeah. The full details of. Um, I was, I'm certainly looking forward to them getting uh, closer to uh, that uh, final championship um, season. And, and sort of, they did a lot of flashbacking to the past, but I'd love to see more of of uh, you know the the story unfolding uh, in you know ninety eight, uh, so that that I'm certainly looking forward to. And then uh, I wonder if they'll uh, get into any of the stuff with his father, because uh, that uh, I'm curious uh, to see how that uh, affected him um, from his own mouth. He's been obviously pretty private about it, um, 
but uh, it's you know it, it's a significant uh, part of his life. This these episodes are supposed to cover baseball, so obviously he is you're gonna have to acknowledge the dad thing. Um, and it's interesting because it's like the Jordan doesn't usually use the word burnout, but like you can tell he's exhausted or he, he's tired. He uses words like that. And it would have been curious to see if he had not gone off and played baseball, just kind of what would happen to the Bulls. Everyone thinks they just go like 8-0 and or something ridiculous like that. I don't think that would happen. But it would have been interesting to see uh, if he had had any injuries, if he if they had managed to like maybe get to the finals and then lose the finals or any of those kind of things. We'll never know, obviously, but it always I'm always curious to speculate to see what would happen. Great. Well, I think that about wraps up uh, another episode of Jordan Ain't No Joke. Sammy, do you want to take us out? Oh, yes. Uh, hang on. Let me get the... And just before Sammy uh, uh, takes us out here, uh, I just want to mention a, a, a recommendation for this week. Um, I think a great uh, book would be uh, Phil Knight's uh, Shoe Dog. Yes. Which ends right before the Jordan era. But it's a great backstory to the company uh, in terms of what the company was and how it became what it was right up until the point uh, to be ready for someone like Michael Jordan. So it's a great read and I highly recommend it. And I mentioned the um, the Dream Team documentary as well. That was an NBA TV special. Uh, you can dig that up. That's I think that's probably floating around YouTube. So, But that's also worth checking out just for more of that. They don't have enough of the practice stuff. That, that uh, I wish they kind of did, but as a kind of context for all that's going on in the last dance, that's a good one to check out. Sorry, just to even hop on to uh, what Sammy is talking about. On YouTube, uh, the official Olympics channel does have a lot of those 92 games uh, online. And uh, it's really interesting to watch because there's no commentary. So you can actually hear a lot of the chatter on the floor. So, nice. But for people who want to see those games in a greater context, uh, check them out on YouTube. And finally, my uh, last recommendation is Space Jam. <laughs> the first one. Yes. Try it, the first one. <laughs> yes. See it now before LeBron ruins it. That should be the tagline for the second one. Um, so we're going to go out with a uh, tribe called Quest. This song's called Lyrics to Go. It's not one of their bigger ones, but it's a good one. And of course, it's by Fife Dog. Uh, moment, a moment of silence for Five Dog. But Fife was a big sports fan. His line was, I'm Jordan with the mic. You want to gamble? Yes. Perfect. All right. See you guys yeah. next week. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.